Welcome to another episode of Chan with a Plan, the podcast. I'm your host, Max Chan. And in today's episode, we will be talking about a topic that has affected millions of professionals worldwide, and that is imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome, as defined by an article from the Harvard Business Review, is something that can be defined as a collection of feelings of inadequacy that persist despite evidence success. Imposters suffer from chronic self-doubt and a sense of intellectual fraudulence that override any feelings of success or external proof of their competence. To simplify this in an example, let's say that you recently got promoted at this Fortune 500 company that you've been working at for a few years. You finally landed that promotion and you're extremely happy. However, you still feel that sense of inadequacy that you don't really deserve this promotion, you don't think you're ready. That is an example of imposter syndrome. Is where that even though you got promoted, you don't really think you belong there because you don't have the necessary skills in order to succeed in the new role that you've been promoted to. And that's why I brought in Diana Alt, who is a career coach who specializes in helping professionals overcome their imposter syndrome. So a little bit about Diana before we get into the conversation in today's episode. She is a connector, problem solver, and career strategy coach who uses the skills she's gathered throughout 20 plus years in corporate product development roles to help people manage their careers and business. Diana helps people get out of their own way by building confidence, setting boundaries, and casting a vision for an awesome life. She's guided by the principle that work should feel good, not like a slow, long march towards oblivion. I do want to mention that this interview was recorded a few days before the Super Bowl, which occurred in early February. So there is a bit of small talk as we talk about the game that was coming up. As we have now gotten all the introduction material out of the way, let's dive into my conversation with Diana on imposter syndrome and how to overcome it. Hey, Diana. Hey, Max. How's uh, your week so far? Uh, it's Friday night as we record this, and the Super Bowl is in two days. So I live in the Kansas City area, and it's a very exciting week. Oh, so that's why you're, you're into the Super Bowl, because you're uh, yeah. Kansas City Patrick Mahomes, right? Yes, yes. And um, there, I went to a small D2 school for college that no one would ever think about for sports. And Tershawn Wharton, who is a rookie on the Chiefs team, is actually the first person ever from my college to play in the Super Bowl because we're a Division II school. So it's kind of fun for a couple of reasons. When Patrick Mahomes got injured a couple of weeks ago against the Browns, were you nervous that he wasn't going to come back and your, your team was uh, pretty much going to be out of it? I was not emotionally ready for that game. It was a, it was very dicey because concussion is so serious and that's what they were saying was happening. Um, so yeah, we were definitely nervous about that uh, here in Kansas City. And I was actually at home by myself that afternoon watching that game, which is more nerve wracking than if you're with people. (laughs) Yeah, we were nervous. We were a little nervous about Patrick. Yeah, it was all good. Hope your team wins on Sunday. Yeah, we do too. We sure do too. All right. So I wanted to bring you on this show, this episode to talk about imposter syndrome. For all my listeners out there, you've probably seen people talk about imposter syndrome on social media, especially on LinkedIn, where it's more apparent, so to speak, because LinkedIn's a career site and there is imposter syndrome in terms of someone got promotion and they weren't sure if they're ready. So I wanted to bring Diana on this show today to talk more about imposter syndrome. So Diana, can you give us a simple explanation of what imposter syndrome is for people who 
haven't heard the term or not familiar what it means? Sure, absolutely. So imposter syndrome is a little bit of amped up insecurity. A lot of people think it's just garden variety insecurity, but it's a phenomenon where high achieving individuals are basically they have an internalized fear that they're going to be exposed as a fraud. In other words, they're constantly worried about being found out as not being good enough for the promotion or not being capable of delivering what their bosses or their friends or their family expect them to deliver. Some of the things that really are hallmarks of if you have imposter syndrome is people thinking, oh, I don't know if I can do that when they have a freaking PhD in the thing that they're worried about not being able to do. Or they might be really hesitant to apply for a job or go for a promotion because they think they don't have every single qualification. Another way that it shows up is people thinking that they have to be perfect all the time. So they end up being unwilling to take risks. So if you're basically feeling things like, I just need more experience before I try that, when you already have a lot of experience, or if I work harder than anybody else, I won't know I'm a fraud leading you to work like 80 hour weeks, it's very likely that you have imposter syndrome. Actually, to bring up the the imposter syndrome about like people finding out that you might be a fraud. Have you seen the show Suits? Are you familiar with that show? I've never watched the show Suits. I've heard of it and like somehow I'm, I missed the memo on actually watching it. Tell me more. Suits is a guy who, who never actually went to law school and this hotshot lawyer actually hires him. So in a way, he is playing a real life imposter syndrome, but he is an imposter because he is a fraud. Yeah, he actually is a fraud. Yeah, so he's trying to do good work so people don't find out about his secret identity, which is that he's not really qualified for being a lawyer because he never graduated law school. But you have these people who are actually qualified and they still think they're fraud and they're not really, they don't think that they're actually ready for that next level. Well, you know, it's really funny that we started off this conversation talking about the Super Bowl because Tershawn Wharton, the rookie that went to my college, is actually a perfect example of how that shows up sometimes for a career. So most people think about major NFL superstars or anybody getting drafted or signed to an NFL team coming from a big football school like one of the SEC conference schools or Michigan or someplace like that, that is a big division one, we play in the Rose Bowl and the champion, you know, the college championships and all that stuff. And Dershawn Wharton never did any of that. He went to a regional engineering school, which is a wonderful school. And he actually wanted to study engineering, but he did not ever play against Ole Miss or Auburn or those big schools like that. He didn't have that kind of experience, but he was a solid, solid Great teammate, great leader, did wonderful things all throughout his college football career. And so he earned his spot on the Kansas City Chiefs and is going to the to the Super Bowl. But if he thought he had to play at an SEC school or a giant Division One school, he might not be getting this opportunity. This happens to people all the time when they're managing their career in regular corporate America. Yeah, like everybody loves that underdog story of this undrafted player who ends up being a superstar, right? So if Mm -hmm. they never doubted themselves and they bet on themselves to be successful, why can't career professionals who definitely have the qualifications bet on themselves to get to that next level? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you on that. So one of the things actually that I actively talk to my coaching clients about is 
how qualified should you be before you apply for a job? So very often you'll hear people talk about, I don't understand why I didn't get the interview or why I didn't land that position. I had 100% of the qualifications. Why didn't the company like me? And that is discouraging, especially if you've been laid off and you really need to go back to work soon. But I really enjoy flipping the script. And so with my clients, unless there's like a dire, dire financial need or a dire reason, I actually discourage my clients from applying to jobs where they have more than 80% of the qualifications written on the job description. Because I want people to experience growth. The clients that I tend to work with are very action-oriented and want to see you know, meaningful challenge in their career. And I don't want them to be bored. But at the same time, I'm telling them, hey, you should look at things where you maybe don't have a couple of, of the skills or qualifications. They often are fighting imposter syndrome. So we end up working through that and trying to figure out, you know, yes, this is appropriate for you to try. No, it's not appropriate for you to try. You're not going to die if you apply for the job or go to the interview and you don't land it. And you may end up finding it's your best career growth opportunity ever. Yeah, just to go to that thing about like the job description that I tell everybody I talk to, all the professionals, that you don't need 100% of the job description to, in order to apply. In fact, based on what you said, it's actually a detriment for you to actually apply for a mm-hmm. 100% qualified job because you'll get bored really quickly. There's no growth. So I usually recommend clients and professionals that if you have at least 60%, you should be applying because again, there's no such thing as perfect candidates and these job descriptions are looking for a perfect candidate. Yeah, I completely agree with that. A lot of people get really nervous when you say 60%, but when people study things like the prevalence of more men in the executive boardrooms or in management rank, or things like why are men oftentimes paid more than women on the aggregate, you know, when they're in the exact same role, it's a different conversation. But if you just look at people within a company a lot of times the men on average make more money because there's more of them in management positions. This happens in part because men do get imposter syndrome, but not as high of a percentage of them. And so more men actually throw their hats in the rings on average for executive and management roles, which means that they get more raises. And people without imposter syndrome, especially men without imposter syndrome, are willing to apply for the promotion when they only have 50 to 60% of the qualifications. Whereas many women will have like 120% and they'll still be wondering, you know, do I need more experience before I try to get promoted to director of whatever department they're in? Just to add to that, I heard a statistic. I don't know the exact percentages, but I know from the research that was conducted that when it comes to job offers, men tend to negotiate more times than women do. Is that true from your experience and from your uh, knowledge as well? It's absolutely true. And I actually was just in a clubhouse room on this exact topic of compensation. There's another career coach, Kim Tran, that hosted it. And Kim is very, very passionate about basically getting fair compensation negotiation, particularly for women and people of color. So we had extensive conversation about that. There were some job seekers in the room, a few coaches in the room, and some recruiters in the room. And the recruiters all confirmed that 100% of men are negotiating their job offers. They all do. It's like a given. And women do. There's some old wives' tales out there that say that women never negotiate. That's not true. 
But I believe the figure that some of the recruiters were saying is only about half to two thirds of women will try to negotiate their job offers. But the most telling thing to me about that is women get afraid. When I talk to women about negotiating compensation, they're afraid the job offer is going to get rescinded if they ask for more money. Have you ever heard that from any of your clients, Max, a concern that if they try to put rock the boat on compensation, they're going to lose the whole opportunity? No, because I tell them negotiating is okay. They're expecting it. So I never actually had a client Good. say the word because I told Good. them right out the bat, you should negotiate and this is how you do it. And I've actually helped clients get $1,000 more than what they would get if they didn't negotiate, right? I'm so glad that you're training your clients that way because it's important. But the question that we asked was, to the recruiters, including a couple of people, well, there was recruiters and then there was like a couple of people that were chief people officers. So they've owned all of HR in some companies. I asked the question, have you ever seen a job offer rescinded because a candidate tried to negotiate? And I wanted to make it very clear. I'm not talking about they tried to negotiate and they couldn't come to an agreement. So the person didn't take the job offer. I'm talking about Somebody asked for more money and the HR department said, nope, we don't want you even at the original price. You don't have an offer anymore. And people with decades of experience said that never happens. So it's always okay to negotiate. Always okay. Just to go back to that for a sec. So one of the things that in in terms of training your mind, in terms of why you should negotiate is let's say you have an interview, you you go through the interview process with this company uh, and then they say, okay, this is the person we want then you negotiate. So if, as long as you're reasonable with the negotiation, it's fine, right? But what people fail to understand on the other side is these hiring managers do not want to go through the whole interview process again, and they don't want yes. second best, right? They want this candidate, yes. they want you. So if they have to budge a bit more in terms of salary, they'll do what they can to do it. Worst case scenario, they say no, but they can create a plan to help you get there, right? Uh, so yeah. that there's always that positive in the negotiation. Yeah, I completely agree with that, especially when you're in fields like technology, where some of the skill sets are scarcer than hen's teeth. The last corporate job I worked before I started working full time for myself was as a product manager in data and analytics for an education company. And we had such rigorous data analytics, scarce skill sets. And we also hired data scientists and other people that knew how to work with big data. And we did well to find a couple of candidates when a developer position opened that were even remotely qualified. So arguing with them about $6,000 if they wanted just a little bit more money was ridiculous because it could put us months behind on our projects if we lost that person over a small negotiation window. Another thing that, you know, I, I have a, a webinar and a keynote presentation about imposter syndrome that I deliver to user groups, organizations. I've done it at a couple of conferences. And one of the things that I like to put up in front of people is the compounding effect of letting imposter syndrome keep you from going for promotions and for asking for more money whenever you're doing a job search. And I take them through a case study of two people, one who never asks for, never really seeks a promotion and doesn't really try to negotiate his salary, and another who's really aggressive about it. And I assume that they start with the same degree that they graduated from college with, and get the same initial job offer, and then compare and contrast what happens. And in the scenario, the first person doesn't try to negotiate, the second person gets a 10% bump on their very first job offer, 
the first person gets promoted finally because someone notices them like seven years after they graduate. The other person gets a big 20% raise whenever they take a promotion a couple years earlier than most people would think they were ready for it. And so you go through this whole case study for years and years, and you find out that it's hundreds of thousands of dollars more that the second person makes because they were willing to negotiate, because they were willing to put themselves out there for promotion. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And when it comes to like growing personal brands, the person that always gets ahead is the one that takes action is not the one that's doing the analysis paralysis, Mm -hmm. right? Which is a form of imposter syndrome in some ways. Yes, yes. Analysis paralysis goes right hand in hand with perfectionism. And perfectionism is one of the leading indicators um, that someone might have imposter syndrome. So let me ask you this. I'm going to flip the script on you a little bit, Max, because you've talked a little bit on LinkedIn about how you're new as a career coach, you know, new entrepreneur, and that you've experienced some imposter syndrome yourself. And a lot of people don't think of men as having imposter syndrome. Can you just tell a little bit about that? I think maybe it's helpful for an audience to hear what we've experienced and how we got over it. Yeah, for sure. So in terms of this career coaching, I didn't really want to call myself a career coach because I believe I lacked the experience. Because when you think of a career coach, you think of someone that has multiple years of experience in coaching clients in terms of growing their careers. Usually career coaches, they come from a background of HR or recruitment because as recruiters, they always look at resumes so they know what is good. They also interview thousands of potential candidates for the positions that they posted. So they have that experience on what makes a good candidate, what makes a good resume. Like for me, I don't have that type of experience. I've never been a recruiter. I've never worked in HR. My background is actually marketing. And I've worked with a couple of career coaches throughout my uh, career that have helped me uh, elevate my professional career, but I've never actually been an HR or have a recruiting background. So I had that imposter syndrome can actually help these people when I've never actually mm-hmm. been the one to hire. But over time, like my first stab at career coaching was helping people that got laid off due to COVID. And I was just volunteering my time yeah. uh, with resume reviews and career advice. And a couple of them uh, actually ended up getting opportunities. And now say, okay, I have the tangible results now. Maybe I can give this a go. And then over time, I started getting more clients. I guess I started getting more wins. And then eventually the imposter syndrome is not as apparent as it used to be because I've gotten these uh, proven results. Yeah, there's nothing like sticking your neck out there to, to feel, okay, I'm conquering this imposter syndrome a little bit. For me, I had similar, I had similar feelings. So my background was not HR and recruiting either. And so, but I enjoyed helping people with their career progression. And I have been a people manager, though. So throughout my career, I had a 20-year career in IT before I left to work for myself. I still do some consulting with some IT companies. And I do some business coaching for small businesses as well as my career coaching. So I've got my fingers in a few different things. And I struggled as well with, can I be effective at this if I haven't had an HR background? And what I realized over time is that in some ways I'm actually better than the recruiter-focused or HR manager-focused background. Because when my clients who are mostly in technology or other knowledge fields like marketing, accounting, things like that, they don't get hired by HR. 
they get hired by directors and VPs and managers within a functional area like software engineering, quality assurance, product management, et cetera. And so I was able to look at people as a hiring manager did. And I taught myself by knowing a lot of people who were recruiters, some of the key things with screening. The other thing is with my career coaching practice, I don't just focus on resumes and cover letters and the job search. Those are very important. But I also work with people on what they really want their career path to be. And I'm actually more able to help people because I've been in tech for 20 years than someone who has an HR background. So I basically reframed how I thought about my experience and how I was really serving people. And that helped me get past some of my imposter syndrome. That's such a good observation because now that you, I think about it, the recruiter doesn't actually hire you. It's the hiring manager. Right. So if you're, if you're going to a company in a marketing manager role, the marketing director is the one that's going to hire you, not the recruiter. The recruiter can, right. can screen exactly. you, right? But they're not actually the one hiring. Mm-hmm. So if you think about it that way, you don't actually need an HR recruiter background. You do obviously do need experience in that field to understand what marketing directors look for, but you actually don't need that HR recruiter background that everybody thinks you need in order to be a career coach. That's a really good point. And so HR basically screened you out and then the hiring managers screen you in. And so it all depends on where you feel like your search is breaking down. Some people can do have a beautiful resume and they can get the interview, but then they bomb it. And so they have trouble getting to the next round of interviews. Other people are wonderful when they can get the interview, but maybe their resume isn't great. And so there's all these different pieces and parts of the hiring process that people like you and I help with. And only some of them are ones that HR gets involved with. Other things are more in the functional area. So just understanding what that full process of career management and how hiring really goes within an organization helped me realize that I was very much more qualified than I was giving myself credit for to be a coach to someone. So some other things that I've done in order to help with imposter syndrome are actually to just list out successes with just facts. So very often people will be trapped in their own head. I call it head trash, you know, their own internal self-talk that tells them they're not good enough or that their accomplishments aren't really that big of a deal. And so what I will have people do is just list out with no adjectives, no qualifications, nothing but the facts. What are some of the things that they've done? So for me, some of my facts throughout my life, so not just my career, I have seven years of public speaking experience at conferences and keynotes and breakout sessions at events. I've got eight years of business and performance coaching experience. I have a master's degree in engineering management. I have been a CrossFit Games judge at the world level. Like I have judged world champions in CrossFit. I was the sixth grade spelling bee champion, which sounds like a silly thing to write down when I'm 46 years old, but I can show through really digging into the Wayback Machine that I've been achieving good things since I was a kid, and I will continue to do that, and that helps me get over my imposter syndrome or get past it. I still struggle with it sometimes, and I think people that are in a growth mode should expect that. Because when you're trying to push the envelope with your career or your life, you're going to bump up against, okay, I'm moving to the next level. That's different. That feels weird. And it can feel kind of crazy for a minute. But then 
eventually hopefully have the tools to jump over and hit that new level and be successful and feel successful. Staying on that topic, what are some suggestions that you can help our audience overcome imposter syndrome? So uh, there's a few things that I really like to do. So some of it is kind of training your brain mentally with some objective information. So the first thing is, who am I right now? And am I awesome? Because if you have imposter syndrome, you probably are awesome and you just are not owning it. So that whole exercise of list down specific facts of things that you have achieved over the course of your life, that's one tool that I have people do. Another thing that I really like to do for me is go look at things like letters of recommendation or recommendations on LinkedIn. And so on LinkedIn, I'm not talking about like when you say that, you know, agile software development or resume writing and people click the endorse button. I'm talking about the actual written paragraph recommendations. And I've used LinkedIn for almost 15 years. So I've acquired a few of those. And on a bad day, when I go and read one of those, it can really help pump me up because somebody else that I respected says I'm awesome. A couple of other things that I really like to do are take risks. The danger of imposter syndrome is that we close in on ourselves so much that we won't try new things and we won't take risks. And that is bad. That's not just going to keep you at, you know, status quo in your career or in your life. Many companies reward people and give promotions to people only if they are willing to take some risk with their career or with their projects. So thing that I like people to do is to rethink risk and failure as potentially positive things and then go find stuff that they can do to sort of build that failure muscle by choosing activities that you can fail at safely. A really good example of that is cooking or barbecuing. Okay, I'm in Kansas City. We're barbecue country. If a person is struggling with imposter syndrome, but they kind of like to cook, I might tell them to go to the grocery store and pick themselves out a beautiful brisket and figure out how to smoke it, even though they may never have done it before. It's easy to find people in our area that know how to do it. YouTube tells us how to do everything. Google tells us how to do everything. And the worst thing that happens is you lose a brisket. The best thing that happens is you figure out that you know how to go learn a new skill and you have a brisket for Sunday dinner. The saying goes, people regret stuff that they didn't do, not stuff that they did, right? Mm-hmm. So when, when yep. you put it into that mindset, you should always go for it. Because I, I personally have lost opportunities because I didn't think I was ready. And then when yep. I look back, I say, you know, I should have done that. Even if I, if I completely flop, at least I would have learned something and grew myself as a person. I completely agree with that. So we regret the things that we don't do. The other thing that I really love to tell people to do is look around at their tribe. So people look at tribe or a group of friends, community in different ways. But for me, there's three important sets of people. It could be individuals or you could have multiple of each of these that really make up a good community to help you when you're struggling with imposter syndrome and to push you forward. So the first is people that have watched you grow up. And that could be, you know, parents, could be siblings. In my case, a person that I think of a lot is my friend Heidi, who I've been best friends with since we were in the second grade. So people that watched you grow up and kind of know you really well, perhaps in a way you don't even think about yourself anymore. Second is people that look up to you. 
I've always been a big fan of mentoring others. Of course, I do that in a way as a career coach, but I'm also looking at things like mentoring students at elementary schools, which I did when I was in high school, serving as chapter advisor to a sorority chapter, which I did for five years for the chapter at my college, and then just making some really close relationships with children of my friends that are high school and college age. And then the last set of people that you want in your tribe, at least one or two, is people that are going to call you out on your crap. So those folks that know that you have more in you than you're giving yourself credit for can sometimes be the best push ever to get you out of a rut and move forward and try to apply for that job, ask for that raise, or go for that promotion. Yeah, the one thing that I've learned and a lot of people might have already known is that it's very hard to do things for yourself. So that's why when professionals hire you, they're not really hiring you just for your expertise. They just want that accountability factor from a coach, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When clients hire me, I don't know what it's like for you because you and I chatted before this interview a bit and we have different business models for how we coach. But when my clients hire me, they're very often wanting to be introspective about what is going to be the right kind of job change for them. So typically they're high achievers that are somehow a little bit dissatisfied with their work. It could be because they've gotten bored because they've been in the same role for a long time. It could be that they're, they and their boss don't get along very well. It could be that they want more money. There's all kinds of different reasons. Or it could be that they want more time at home. I have people that I've actually coached through pay cuts that were deliberate because they wanted to work less hours and travel less and things like that. When I work with people, they want accountability, but what they really want is Jiminy Cricket. Like they want the conscience in their ears that is helping them understand what is the right thing for them and giving them permission to go and do it, despite what other people might say. That's actually a great reason why I should hire a coach because they aren't um, like they're not like usually your friends and family they'll give you quote-unquote bad advice but a career coach can Mm -hmm. give you that third person perspective that is not emotionally connected to you so they'll give you what you should do not what people think that they would have done in your shoes right yeah and a lot of times what i try to do actually i find that my clients actually usually know what to do but they are for some reason blocked from doing it because they are worried about, is it going to have a bad impact on their career long-term? Is their husband going to be okay with it? Can I really do it? You know, I know I should do X, but I'm not actually sure if I'm capable of doing it. And so for me, I don't necessarily spend a lot of time telling my clients what to do, but I help them understand that, yes, it's okay to chase that thing that's important to you. And here are some tools so that you can go and do that. That's the main thing that I do. So one of the things you told us about was you have clients that actually have strategic career moves for a pay cut in terms of getting buy-in with like their friends and family. And then there is some of that imposter syndrome to it is like, should, should I be working a lower role? Was there any of that conversation with you when they were working with you on that strategy? I do find that people talk about imposter syndrome a little bit more when they're trying to chase a higher role or just apply for a job at a different company, or a lot of my clients, I like to say that they change sort of like two degrees off of what they are. So for example, one thing I often work with people on is maybe they are a software engineer. And it can be very exhausting to try to keep up with all the technology changes in software engineering, 
So the person says, I want to do something where I can stay in this tech field, but I'm not constantly trying to understand like what version of React just got released and what all the changes to these detailed you know, programming languages are. And so I'll help them through a process where they figure out, you know what, you actually would be happier if you're a business analyst. And here's why. Here's how it uses your strengths. Here's how things are going to change. Very often a change like that results in less overnight work. They're not on call for if the system breaks, but sometimes it involves a step back. And so that's an example of a career shift that I help people through where maybe they end up making less money, but they're happier. I don't typically see imposter syndrome with that. I see more of, am I going to be looked down upon because I took a pay cut when our culture is so interested in people getting promoted to manager and then getting promoted to director and then getting promoted to VP and then getting promoted to CEO or whatever that is. So it's sort of a different struggle that they go through when they're looking at that sort of shift. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there are always going to be doubts in what moves you make, but just from our conversation for the past half hour, it's better to make that move and then figure it out later than to mm-hmm. do that analysis for paralysis or that perfectionism saying, is this the right move or yeah. not? And then not do anything about it, right? Right. And it's better to try a change and then go back. So a big thing in the IT space is the discussion of what is the role of product owner. So Max, I don't know if you're very familiar with software development, but in agile software development, there's a methodology called Scrum. And there is a role in it that's called product owner. And it is one of those roles that it's still kind of new. It's about 10 years that it's really taken off. And there's been lots and lots of new roles in it. And people are not quite sure really how it should work day to day. They know what it looks like, you know, when they go through training or something like that. But when they actually get into it, it can be really difficult. And I have watched people leap from technology roles into that product owner role. And I've seen half of them love it and half of them hate it. And the beautiful part is if you have an analytical brain and you are in technology, and you have a great work ethic, if you go try to be a product owner for a year, and it doesn't work out, you can go back to what you were doing before or find another pivot. People that have imposter syndrome very often will hesitate to take that first leap, because they'll be afraid that they're not qualified and therefore can't do a good job as product owner. Whereas I would like my clients to think about, would I like it? Can I try it? what's the worst that would happen if I hate it? I would rather have them think about, let's give it a whirl. And then if it doesn't work out, I'll figure out the next move. And another great point that you added is that what's the worst that can happen? So for example, let's mm-hmm. say you got promotion and you don't know if you're ready for it, you take it anyway. The worst that can happen is it doesn't work out. You might get fired and then you just have to go find another job, but you have all that managerial experience that you've learned from your previous job and then you'll be stronger, right? Or another case would be, it doesn't work out. You just say, hey, like I don't think this is right for me. Can I go back to my old role? Like sometimes it's it's hard to move down and move up, but there's always that conversation you could have with your boss saying, hey, this managerial role isn't for me. Can I go back down? I've seen people do that too. I've actually seen people take a management role and then decide, you know what? I don't like people management. I don't want to do this part. I don't get to play with that thing that I love to do very much because instead I'm managing people that get to do the work that I love to do. And it can be done. 
One analogy I often use with careers is that your career should not be viewed as a ladder. I like to look at it more as a rock wall. Now, I don't really like heights, so I don't actually do rock wall climbing at a rock wall gym or anything like that myself, but I've watched people do it and I know a lot of people that love it. And the key point with a rock wall or any sort of climbing is that very often you're going sideways so that you can eventually make progress to go up. And sometimes you're actually going down to go back up. And if we'll look at that and be willing to do that in our careers, we will try more things and be more well-rounded for future opportunity. The big misconception for recent graduates is that they think the corporate ladder is just straight up. It goes from like specialist to manager, to Mm -hmm. director, to VP, and then C-suite or what have you, right? But from me just being in the working world for close to 10 years is that people can't do horizontal moves and that's okay. I I know a lot of people that they didn't want to manage people because there's going to be a certain time, a certain point in that ladder where you can no longer be an individual contributor. You have to manage people in order to like make more money and move up in the corporate Mm -hmm. world. And a lot of these people, they don't want to manage people. They just want to be an individual contributor and, and do their own type of work, right? Because like, there's a certain point when you get bored of doing the same thing. So you go into other departments and do other individual contributor responsibilities that are different, but it gives you a variety to grow as a person. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Well, and the point about lateral moves is really good, Max, especially if you really want to make it eventually into the executive ranks. The best companies that really take their leadership seriously require breadth of experience in different departments. They don't just like to see it. They won't hire you if you don't have breadth of experience. So there comes a point in a career that even if you were shooting straight up the ladder and say finance, you're not going to end up being able to be the CFO if you haven't ever gone and gotten some operations experience or some client care experience or you know, been a GM of a small business unit or something like that. It's just considered a liability to not take those lateral moves. So I like to see people be open to opportunities instead of being closed in and so scared that I don't have 100% of the experience. I can't do the thing. I should just stay in my cube and continue to be the senior accounts payable specialist. Like I, I don't want to see that for people unless they're happy. If they're truly happy in a lane, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But most of the clients that choose to come work with me are itching for a little bit of stretch and challenge. What you brought up earlier, Diana, that a lot of people don't know is that when it comes to going into that C-suite level is that they want their employees to do multiple roles in various departments to build up that uh, breadth of Mm -hmm. a skill set in order to be ready for that type of role. Because when you're in the C-suite, you'll be working with operations, finance. You might not be actually doing the work, but you need to understand the knowledge and how they operate in order to be effective. Yep, Yep. absolutely. It's something that I wasn't really conscious of early in my career, but it was really valuable to learn later. So as an example, around, let's see, I think it was in 2002, I went to work for a healthcare IT company here in Kansas City. And for whatever reason, the CIO and I got along really well, which was sort of weird because I was pretty low on the totem pole. I was within the first few years of my career, and he was the CIO in a fairly large organization of about 250 people. But we started within a few weeks of each other within the department. He had worked in other parts of the department, 
And he started his career in software, but he found out that he had to go and learn how do I manage network infrastructure? How do I get more familiar with help desks and tech support? How do I learn about things like incident management and cybersecurity? If he hadn't gone and learned those things by being in roles where he was directly responsible for it or working on teams where he was closely tied to projects in those areas, he never would have been qualified to be the CIO. You really have to push the imposter syndrome out of you in order to really develop and get to that level. Because again, Mm -hmm. you might start off as someone in marketing, but you need to really push yourself to other roles like operations, sales to get that breadth of knowledge in order to move up. So Yes, you might not have that sales experience and you might be scared, but you have to do it if you want to get to that level. And I don't think a lot of people understand that. They think they can just stay in the same field and just keep moving yeah. up based on seniority, right? Yeah. And another another thing that occurs to me, Max, is that very often people think if they don't have that perfect career ladder trajectory that you talked about earlier, that so many college graduates think is how careers work, they feel like it's a liability. So they think, oh, well, I did 10 years in marketing and then I went over and I tried to sales operations and I did that for a couple of years and then I was a team lead in that. And now I kind of want to go back to marketing. They get scared that because they have those three years in sales operations, somehow they're going to be less than other candidates that might have stayed in marketing. And my experience from having been on umpteen hiring teams is that it's the opposite. Very often, the person who tried something else and learned a domain more deeply that is related to, but not necessarily tons of crossover to the department they want to go back to is actually the more attractive candidate. It makes them special. So those things, I would encourage your listeners that those things that your gut says, oh gosh, that's a liability. I want to make sure they don't know about that or, oh my gosh, I'm not going to get promoted because I went and did those couple of years in sales operations. I want them to figure out how to turn that into a strength whenever they are doing their next, you know, shooting for a promotion or applying for a new job. And just to add to that, successful people out there, they respect someone that tries something even if it fails, right? So in a way, Mm -hmm. the imposter syndrome is really being a huge detriment to your success because people like it when you take risks and you grow as a person, people don't like someone that just analyzes everything and doesn't do anything to do something about it. Yep. Yeah. The inability to take risk is actually one of those things that raises red flags, especially if you're trying to move into leadership roles for a lot of the executives that would hire managers, directors, other executives. You're absolutely right on that. All right. Uh, So what is some lasting advice in terms of how should someone acknowledge that they have imposter syndrome and how to conquer it? Like what is some like quick tidbits that you could share uh, for our audience to close up this conversation? Yeah. So my top tip is reframing. So there's a variety of different areas for reframing. So the techniques I talked about earlier about listing out your successes or going and rereading your letters of recommendation really help. But what I like to talk to my clients about and friends, like I will not, it's the thing that I won't shut up about. I probably talk about it at the Thanksgiving table is figure out how to reposition the things that are different about you 
as a strength. So for example, if you were a marketing person that went and worked in sales ops and now you're going back to marketing, don't feel like, oh, I lost a few years in marketing. Feel like now I can tell the marketing people what drives sales crazy and we can make everything more efficient. That is a strength, not a weakness. So anything that makes you feel less than, poke at it and see how it actually can be made into a superpower. And that's a great way to end our conversation on imposter syndrome, Diana. Really appreciate you coming on. Glad to come. Uh, how can people find you uh, online and what are some uh, projects that you are working on? So right now I am actually working on a resume course that I plan to deliver as as a digital course with some additional supports like Q&A sessions and things like that to help people apply the knowledge. I'm planning to launch that this spring. It's still being developed as we speak, but I did create a guide that I call my resume don'ts guide. And so people can find that by going to dianateaches.com. Uh, you'll be able to sign up for my email list and download that document there. And then I'm also all over LinkedIn. So LinkedIn's a really good place to connect with me. And I would love to talk to people about what they're dealing with with resumes, with figuring out what they want to be when they grow up, or with imposter syndrome. And also, if people are part of some sort of company or community user group that would like to have a presentation about imposter syndrome, I offer that service too. So that's something I can come to talk to a group about. We know each other on LinkedIn and you know how active we both are on that platform. Did you ever have imposter syndrome when you first started out in terms of posting your own content? I didn't whenever I first started posting because I kind of didn't know what I was doing. I was just like, eh, it's a thing. I'll try it. You know, there, I started like almost 15 years ago. So it was not very many people there. I didn't, I didn't know what I didn't know. The imposter syndrome I have felt on LinkedIn actually came when I was switching from the mentality of being an employee to being a business owner. Because now instead of it just being a place where I could go and talk about things related to my field, it became a channel that I need to serve people on so that potentially I can get business because I like to do things like eat and live indoors. So that was a little bit of a hurdle for me. Um, and I've started following people that I feel like are really genuine to learn from them. Max, that's one of the reasons why you and I are having this podcast interview is because you caught my attention by being very genuine and engaging on LinkedIn. So you have helped me a little bit with my own imposter syndrome. That's great. I'm, I'm glad to be of service to you, Diana. And yeah, as soon as I made that post last week about me launching a podcast, you immediately messaged me say, hey, I, I want to be on this. I want to be part of this platform that you're uh, currently working on. Well, I actually immediately told you two other people. That's what I actually did. And then I said, and I want to do it too. So that was, that I believe in what you're doing. And so I wanted to make sure that you had some really solid guests on your podcast. All right, thanks again, Diana. And we'll talk to you soon. Diana provided a lot of strategies and insights in terms of how to overcome imposter syndrome. I wanted to take a couple minutes here to share a few of the highlights that I think are most important in our conversation. The first thing is training your brain mentally to position your self-reflection in a more positive light. And she recommends two ways to do this. The first is list things that you have achieved, whether it's looking at your past resume and looking at all the accomplishments you have done, or looking at letters of recommendation from your previous coworkers or boss, 
whether it's an official letter or just looking at recommendations that coworkers made about you that are currently on your LinkedIn profile. That will give you a positive self-reflection of yourself and really help you internalize how great you are and how great you have done in your career and helping others in the companies that you have worked for in the past. The second point she made is to take more risks. Companies reward risk takers because risk taking helps grow the company forward. You can't grow as a person without taking risks. So she recommends to her clients to take risks safely, which is take risks in your personal life that would not affect work. Something small such as learning how to cook a brisket as her example stated. The worst thing that could happen is you burn the brisket. The best thing that could happen is you made a great meal and you learned something new. The point of the exercise is to show that failure is okay. It's a learning lesson and it's, it's okay to keep trying. Again, as I just mentioned, companies reward employees who take risks in their own careers in order to propel the company forward. The last thing I want to mention in my conversation with Diana in terms of overcoming imposter syndrome is to really take advantage of the support group that you have built over the years. I always tell my clients and other professionals that when things are tough, having a great support group really helps you get out of a rut and help you keep going. Again, this is Chan with The Plan The Podcast. I'm your host, Max Chan. I upload new episodes every Tuesday on all popular podcast platforms. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, where I post daily content on topics such as job search, career advice, and LinkedIn tips. That's it for me, and I'll see you next time.